1 to 3. You know, we all have formative influences on our lives growing up. Uh, different events and things and people that have shaped us in different ways. And as I look back on my own life, one of the, uh, the things that profoundly influenced me is um, Monty Python. Um, as, as a kid, I, I watched, if you know Monty Python, it's a really wacky, offbeat British comedy troupe with a really random kind of sense of humor and uh, just bizarre, but for some reason uh, connected with me as a teenager and I think uh, for good or for ill affected my sense of humor. Um, you know, they did a movie that they were famous for called Monty Python and the Holy Grail uh, with the knights who sort of went around with no horses and they kind of galloped and there were guys with coconuts making the horse sounds. You know the thing. Well, they also, I don't know if you know this, they also had a television series. It was called Monty Python's Flying Circus. And it was the same kind of thing, just really wacky, offbeat, random skits that, that were sort of bizarre in their humor and sort of the dry British humor. And, uh, it, and they did this little bit, and they probably do it once an episode, where sometime during an episode of The Flying Circus, uh, there would be some skit, and it would be really bizarre and haywire, and funny things would be happening. And then in front of the camera would suddenly step a well-dressed, dignified gentleman who would look right into the camera, and he would say, and now for something completely different. And then he would go away, and then there would be some new skit. And... This morning we are about to embark upon a sermon series in the New Testament book of Revelation. And I kind of wish I could get John Cleese from Monty Python to come stand before you and say, and now for something completely different. Because Revelation is such a different kind of book. You know, I open my New Testament, I go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I read the Gospels, I get it. You know, Jesus heals people. He uh, teaches. I read his teaching. I see him go to the cross. I see him rise from the dead. I understand. I then turn in my Bible over to the epistles, to uh, the, the writings of Peter and Paul and James and John. I read in 1 John, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. I get it. Hard to do, but I get it. I understand, love one another. I can make sense of that. But then I turn to Revelation and I'm into something completely different. There are angelic beings pouring out great bowls of wrath upon the earth and the sea turns to blood and the stars are falling from the sky. It's apocalyptic and cataclysmic and earth-shattering. Jesus is coming from heaven. He's got a sword coming out of His mouth. There are wars and there is judgment um, there's a dragon there's, you know, with multiple heads. There's a beast that comes up out of the water, like, I don't know, Godzilla or something. I mean, it's just, what is this book? It's so strange. And so what I find when I talk to Christians about the book of Revelation is that it seems to me Christians tend to have a twofold response. They are simultaneously intrigued and confused. The Christians say, oh, I really want to learn more about that, and I'm fascinated, while simultaneously saying, but I don't think I can get it, and so I don't really read Revelation, even though I'm interested. I had a lady um, 
couple, uh, maybe about a month or so ago now, when she heard that I was going to be preaching on Revelation, she said, I'm so happy that you're going to do this. She said, because there's two things I don't understand. She said, number one, I don't understand poetry. And she goes, and I don't understand Revelation. <laughs> I'm so glad you're teaching on it. And by the way, I think those two things might be related. We could talk about that in a minute. But, uh, yeah, we skip it. But then, look, this is the last book of the Bible. How can we skip it? I mean, you know, this is the crescendo of the whole Bible. The whole story, the biblical narrative, reaches its triumphant climax in the book of Revelation. Not only is it the last book in the Bible as we have it, it was probably the last book to be written, written around 95, 96 A.D. And here it is. You know, not reading Revelation would be like watching a, a climactic movie and then as you come to the last five minutes of the movie where the whole thing reaches its final phase where everything is wound up and wrapped together and solved, we turn off the movie and then just never watch it again. I guess the, this is it. This is the whole conclusion to this amazing narrative that God has given us in Revelation. And so it's a book that we need to read. And, and so I come to you this morning in fear and trembling with great humility. I'm not a prophecy expert. Apparently there are prophecy experts. I don't know where one goes to get certified in that, but um, apparently some people are. I don't know. Uh, and I'm going to be very honest with you. I do not understand everything in this book. I can't tell you that I do. But I do believe there is a central through line to this book. That, that there are some major themes that run through this book so that regardless of what your personal views may be on the end times and all that, I think there are some things we can all agree upon and that will edify us as a congregation. There's a, a trunk line in this book that if we can tap into it, will electrify our Christian lives and bring us to life. There's a blessing to be had in this book. And so that's why we're going to study it. We have studied it as part of God's Word. So it's with humility and trepidation and fear that we come to this text. So what I want to do this morning is just read and study the first three verses as an introduction to Revelation. Next Sunday I'm going to look at verses 4 through 8, and that will be a continuation of the introduction. I've entitled this sermon, Introduction to Revelation, Part 1. And now this is going to be really creative, but next week's sermon is called Introduction to Revelation, Part 2. So, very creative, I know. Um, and I just want to look at these first three verses and, and try to understand this. Let me read the verses before we dig into them. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. What I want to do this morning is ask three questions about Revelation that I believe can be answered from this introductory section, from this first three verses, which are almost, they're not even really the beginning of the letter. They're almost like a title before the letter. It, it, it's, it's a superscription to the whole document of Revelation. And I just want to ask three questions of this text that I think we can answer from these first three verses. So here's the first question I want to ask this morning. Very basic question. What is Revelation? What are we dealing with here? 
What kind of animal is this book? What, what genre of literature is it? We call it the book of Revelation. Is it a book? I mean, what, what is a book? And what type of species of writing, so to speak, is Revelation? And the basic simple answer is Revelation is a prophecy. It's a prophecy. Look down at verse 3. He says, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Now, what's a prophecy? Uh, a prophecy, biblic, in a biblical understanding, is a message from God given to a prophet who then takes that message to the people that God sends them to and says, hey, this is what God said. So prophets really, they're not a very creative bunch. You know, prophets don't make up things. They're not artists. They're, they, they don't sort of create ideas out of their own heads. They're kind of more like mailmen. God tells them a message, and then they faithfully go and say, <clears throat> uh, they're probably not going to want to hear this, but here's the message. Right? And that's what we see here in Revelation. Look back at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, that, in other words, the revelation that Jesus owns, that comes from Jesus is what that of means. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. All right? So God the Father gives to the Son this revelation. Why? To show his servants, that's us, what must soon take place. So God has a revelation for us. And how does it get to us? Well, next sentence. He made it known by sending His angel. Right, so the Father gives to the Son a revelation through an angel to His servant John. That's the prophet. Now, who is John? We're talking about John the Apostle. Uh, John, one of the twelve disciples. Uh, one of the, the three in the, of Jesus' inner circle. Peter, James, and John. This is John who wrote the Gospel of John. John who wrote... 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And now he's an old man. He's in exile because of his faithfulness to Jesus. And this revelation comes from Father and the Son through an angel to John. He's the prophet, and now he writes it down for his servants, which Jesus' servants, which is who? Us. So there's the, the chain of prophecy coming to us. So this is a prophetic word. Now, I should probably clarify also something about prophecy, because I think when you start using the word prophecy... We have a certain connotation with that word that's not quite what the Bible means about it. I think we often think of prophecy as a purely a prediction of future events. So, you know, we hear someone had a prophecy, and it, what we think that means is, well, they saw something in the future. Uh, you know, there's this sort of hubbub going around. Have you heard this about the year 2012? Apparently the world's supposed to end in 2012. might not be a bad thing, actually, but, um, you know, it's supposed to end. The Mayans have a calendar, and apparently the calendar, Mayan calendar ended in 2012. And I think that's, or Nostradamus predicted certain things apparently. I think that's how we think of prophecy as just a future telling of something that hasn't happened. When you look at the Bible's understanding of prophecy, it may or may not have a future element. That's kind of secondary. More importantly in the Bible, prophecy is simply about God speaking to his people right here and now. And that they better listen right here and now. What God has to say may have a future element to it or not, but it, it's very much a word to the present. When God sent his prophets to Israel, it wasn't just to say, hey, guys, you want to hear some cool stuff in the future? It was, listen, God has something to say to you. So when you read prophetic literature, we don't want to read it like it's some sort of uh, Sudoku puzzle. It's kind of fun to try to solve. This is God speaking to us. Prophetic literature, when you open it, it's kind of a scary thing because the spirit of the risen Christ is going to address us. 
He's going to address me. He's going to address you and this church. He has things to say to our church that we have to hear. And not just things way back then. The Spirit of the risen Christ through prophecy speaks to His congregation. And so we have to be ready to hear what the Lord has to say to us. If we come to the book of Revelation and and we find ourselves titillated but not convicted, then we've probably misread the book of Revelation. If we come to the book of Revelation and we have not had our hearts pierced with a sword, but we've only had our minds entertained with a kind of Rubik's Cube puzzle, we've probably misunderstood the book of Revelation. I think sometimes we come to the book of Revelation and people you know, use it as, as a way of solving the future, prognosticating. You know, They open up the book of Revelation here and you open up the Wall Street Journal here and you put your cup of coffee here and you go, okay, let's see. The big toe of the beast. Is that Vladimir Putin... And, uh, and what about these ten horns? Is that the European Union, Economic Union? You know, what is this? And we try to use it as kind of a, a, you know, a decoder ring out of the cereal box to make sense of current events. And, and I think we're missing the point. It's a word of prophecy. God is talking to us. It's not just to kind of entertain us with visions of the future, though that may be part of what Revelation has to say. Prophecy is for us now. What's the, the repeated phrase again and again in Revelations chapter 2 and 3 to the churches? At the end of every letter to the church, it says, Let he who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a call for us to listen to God. So prophecy is very much God speaking here and now in our faces as His people. We need to listen to what He says. I think that is borne out by the fact that this prophecy comes to us encapsulated in a letter. We'll get to more of this next Sunday, but look at, verses, look at verse 4. We'll talk about this next Sunday. But it starts out, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. So the revelation begins with a typical letter formula. What's a letter in the New Testament? It's a word written to a specific group of people to address their situation. So the prophecy of Revelation, the medicine is kind of put in a gel cap. <laughs> and the gel cap is a letter that's for us to swallow. It's for us to hear. It's a God's word to us now. The other thing I'll say about Revelation is, as a prophecy, probably this needs to be said, is that it's a certain kind of subspecies of prophecy called apocalyptic literature. Uh, apocalyptic literature, you can find it in the Old Testament some places, like Daniel has some apocalyptic you can find it in Jewish writings between the Testaments. And it's here in Revelation as well. So apocalyptic is a kind of subtype of the broader type of prophecy. And it has certain features to it. There's weird visions. There's ghastly figures. There's symbolic numbers. And you see a lot of that here in Revelation as well. Uh, one of the things I really want to point out is, as apocalyptic literature, this prophecy is very much image-driven. There are images and visions and pictures. It's a very visual kind of book. Um, and, and, and so we have to sort of come at it understanding this kind of visual, representative, symbolic approach to Revelation. If you try to read it very literally, you're going to come up with some real problems. <laughs> you know, Jesus is going to have a sword coming out of his mouth. Uh, there's, you know, if you take it literally, there's really monsters that come out of the ocean. Because this, isn't, this book isn't meant to be taken in a sort of linear, literal fashion. It's very figurative, pictorial, and, and we need to look at it that way. 
Uh, there's a book that I'm encouraging people to buy if you're interested in reading more on Revelation. It's actually available at our book table. If you come right before the service, you can go down and buy it. It's called uh, The Returning King. It's just a basic commentary and introduction to the book of Revelation by Vern Poitras. I mean, look how small it is, okay? Yes, we like small. This is not a huge tome. Uh, the introduction to this book is worth the, the price of it. I mean, it's such a great introduction to Revelation. I just find it so helpful. But, but he talks about this image nature of Revelation, that it's a lot of pictures. And, and uh, he talks about this kind of experience maybe some of you have had. People will sometimes say, when I was a little kid, it was my favorite book. But then when I got older, I was really confused by it. <laughs> you know, something about kids just being able to appreciate pictures and stories and images. And uh, he tells a story. He says, once when I was teaching Revelation, I noticed many children in the congregation. He said, I want you children to read Revelation too. If you are too young to read it for yourselves, have your parents read it to you. You too can understand it. In fact, you may understand it better than your parents. A boy about 12 years old came up to me afterwards. I know exactly what you mean, he said. A short time ago, I read Revelation and I felt I understood it. Praise the Lord, I said. The boy went on. He says, I read it just like a fantasy, except that I knew it was true. And I thought precisely. This is a very image-laden book. And so we need, to, we need to read it in some ways differently than we read other parts of the Bible because it's a different kind of literature and it's going to require a different sort of approach in a way of thinking. I think reading Revelation is like being on a boat. You've got to have your sea legs. It's moving. It's not simple and solid. It's, it, the images are moving. The visions are moving. When you're on a boat and you're sailing, the wind can change in a second and you've got to be able to adjust it to moving, changing wind conditions and water conditions. Things come at you in repeated waves and, and there's a rolling nature to the book. There are signs in the heavens by which we must navigate. This is a different kind of literature. So we have to have our, our minds kind of ready for that. It's prophecy. It's living and alive. And just when you think you got the whole thing in a bottle, it, it, it comes alive and does something else and speaks to us. That's the nature of prophecy. So, you know, for you kind of linear... Uh, uh, types like, like I am who sort of think in a straight line, we're going to be challenged and stretched by this book as it comes at us in different ways through different images and visions. So what is Revelation? It is a prophecy. It is God speaking to His church right now about some things future, yeah, in part, but past and present. But the point is God is talking to His church. Are we ready to hear what He's going to say to us in this book? Second question to ask of these first three verses First question is, what is Revelation? Second question, what is Revelation about? All right, what, what's the basic message of this prophecy? What's the major theme of this book? And I suppose there's different ways to sum it up, but this is the way I would put it. L- let me just say it, and then I'll take you back to the text to show you how I got there. What's the major theme of Revelation? I, I might put it this way. Revelation is about the triumphant end times kingdom of Jesus in which Jesus comes to judge his enemies and save his people. So it's about the end. It's about the last phase of history. And it's about Christ coming as the king in his sovereignty in which he destroys and judges his enemies and saves his people and brings the human story to a conclusion. That's what the book is really about. Or to give you a two-word summary of the book of Revelation, here it is. Jesus wins. That's it. I don't know what your eschatology is, your view of the end times. I hope we can agree on that. Jesus wins. 
I mean, this is the, the kind of the end of the book. Uh, Christ wins. <clears throat> now, here's the twist. This is, the, this is what I want to sort of kind of give you a different little take that maybe we haven't heard, but I think is, is very biblical. Here's, here's a little twist. The end times, this is the end time kingdom of Jesus. When are the end times? And what I want to argue this morning is that the end times described by the book of Revelation is the entire period from the first to second comings of Jesus. And I think this is a huge misunderstanding that a lot of people have today. We think of the end times as sort of like the last little blip before Jesus returns. But when you look at the New Testament, it is always the case that the the end times is the entire period from the first to second comings of Jesus. And that's what Revelation is describing, this entire period between the first and second comings of Christ. So people have asked me sometimes, Pastor, do you think we're in the end, end times yet? I always say, yeah, I know we are. Have been for 2,000 years. This is it. This is the last time. You know, in, in the Broadway musical called Human History, we're in the last act. This is it. The final days of God's working. When Christ returns, that's the end. And so these are the last days. This is the final period of God's plan. Um, Look in your bulletin. I have a little sermon notes handout. That may sound different to you because I think we have been told so many times, we think of the end times as, some, as the final little bit. What I think we think of the end times are should probably better be called the end of the end times, like the very final thrust of this final phase that we're in. But look, look at your sermon notes. They're on the front page. Uh, what I did was I just listed different texts in the New Testament that talk about the last days, the end times, the consummation of the ages, the final hour, different ways of putting it. And what you'll see is that New Testament writers always, always, always refer to the end times as something that has begun in their day with the coming of Jesus. Right? So if you ask the, end, you know, the New Testament writers, when's the end times? They're like, man, we're in it. It has begun because Jesus has come. His kingdom has come, the end times kingdom of Christ. Jesus came. What did he preach? The kingdom of God is at hand. So it is underway. Is it finished yet? No. It's already, but not yet. It's already begun, but not yet completed. So we live in this kind of intervening period. Um, and so I, I'm not going to read through these verses, but I encourage you, read, just read through that. You'd be amazed how the New Testament views the end times period, that we are in it here between the first and second comings of Christ. Uh, but let's look at Revelation chapter 1, 1 to 3. Cause let's actually go to the text itself, because I think it's right here in this text. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Why? Because the time is near. Right? And by near, I think that's just another way of saying it's here in your face. It's like when Jesus would walk into a village and say the kingdom of God is near. You know, what did he mean? Did he mean it's like a mile away? Did he mean it'll be here in a year? No, he meant, I'm here. I'm the king. It's near. It's, it's here. It's not way over here. It's right in your face. And I think that's what it's talking about. The, the time is here. It's near. It's in our face. It has begun. Or look at chapter uh, 1, verse 1 of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, there's something really interesting here, and I, I'm going to have to ask you to bear with me. I'm going to put on my Greek nerd hat 
and uh, take us into a little bit of the labyrinth of the Greek nerd stuff. Not, not trying to get all academic here, but it's just a really interesting thing that I think is helpful. Um, if you look at that phrase, to show his servants what must soon take place, I have it here on the handout, the, the third quote down, Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Then I put in italics, what must soon take place. What you have in parentheses after that is a transliteration of the Greek into English letters. And it's the phrase, what must soon take place, is ha, the things, day, it is necessary, the things that are necessary, genestai, to be, and take, which means quickly, very quickly. So the things that must happen soon, the things that must soon take place. What's interesting is that phrase, the things that are necessary to happen soon, is lifted straight out of the book of Daniel, chapter 2. So it's a very direct verbal allusion that's sort of lifted out of Daniel 2 and brought to Revelation. So here's how it appears in, in Daniel, though. Daniel says in Daniel 2.28, However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the last days or the latter days. And it's the same phrase, ha de genestai, except instead of saying in take soon, he says ep eschaton hemeron, which means in the last days. So basically, here's what John's done. He went to Daniel, found a vision about the last days, took that phrase, what is necessary to happen in the last days, brought it to today, snipped off the last days, snip, and put on soon. So what Daniel saw as way in the distant, John's like, okay, remember what Daniel saw? Guess what? Now. It is now happening. It is soon. The last days have begun. In fact, let's go back to Daniel chapter 2. Do you guys remember that story? Great story. Cracks me up. Look at Daniel chapter 2. It's on page 874 in the Pew Bible. Love this story. We read it a couple uh, weeks ago. That's one of the reasons, by the way, we're reading through Daniel because there's so much Daniel in Revelation. If you go to Daniel chapter 2, page 874. You guys remember this story? King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It's a bad dream. Freaks him out. So he calls his... uh, wise men to him and he says hey guys i got a job for you i want you to tell me what i dreamed and then interpret it for me and they say okay great tell us what you dreamed and we'll interpret it he goes no no you didn't hear me you tell me what i dreamed and tell me what it means and the wise men are looking around saying uh it's not usually how this works usually we got to get the dream from you we can't tell you what you dreamed i mean no one can do that the king says great well i'm going to kill you all then must have been in a bad mood i don't know just Maybe the dream really had him upset. But he's like, I'm going to kill all of you because you're all a bunch of phonies because you can't tell me what my dream was. And so everyone's, I imagine, freaking out. But Daniel hears about it, one of the wise men, and Daniel prays. And he gets his friends to pray. And during the night, God supernaturally gives the very dream to Daniel that he had given to Nebuchadnezzar so that Daniel sees the same dream as well as the interpretation. This is just a supernatural act of God. So Daniel comes the next day and he's like, don't worry, king. I know what you dreamed, and I know what it means. And I'm here to break it down for you. So, if you look at uh, the text of Daniel 2, for instance, here's the vision, verse 31. Here's the dream. He says, You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken into pieces at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. So we have this huge growing rock (laughs) that fills the earth. And that's the dream. And then Daniel says, I'm going to tell you what it means. And he tells them that statue with the four parts. I won't read this. You can read it if you want. Represent four kingdoms. He says, the golden head, that's you. That's your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. That's Babylon. After that comes a silver kingdom, which we know from the history of the world was the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, that's the, the, the people in Daniel 6 when Daniel's in the lion's den. The Medes and the Persians had taken over. After the Medo-Persian Empire, the next one is Greece. They're the bronze statue. And after Greece comes the iron part of the statue, which is the Romans who came after that. And when did Jesus come? During what empire? During the Roman Empire. Suddenly, a rock comes out and it smashes and it grows. Look at verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. After all, not those earthly kings, God's kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all of those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. It's not a human kingdom. It's a divine kingdom. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future, in the last days. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. So do you see what Daniel saw and what King Nebuchadnezzar saw was a vision of God's last day's kingdom. And when Jesus came that vision began to be fulfilled. Jesus came and He said, the kingdom of God is here. I'm the king. Now, Jesus fulfilled it in a surprising, ironic fashion. He came as the suffering king, which they didn't expect. His kingdom today is a kingdom of humility and suffering until He comes again. That's an ironic fulfillment that was not fully expected. But there it is. And is not Jesus' kingdom growing today? Where is Babylon today? And in a museum, I guess. You can go see some of those statues. Where's, where's Greece? Where's Rome gone? Where's the kingdom of Jesus? Better than ever. Bigger than ever. It is growing around the world. That The kingdom of Christ is pushing into countries and peoples and languages. People are coming to faith in Christ. We just had our missions conference. Now think about it this way. What's the missions conference all about? You could say it's a celebration of the growing rock. The rock from Daniel 2 is filling the whole earth as the gospel of Jesus goes into the world, albeit invisibly, albeit through suffering and under the radar, just as Christ suffered before he got his crown. So now the church is spreading out and his kingdom is spreading heart by heart, person by person, as the nations come to faith in Jesus. This is God's kingdom being fulfilled. And don't you see that when Jesus came, that began this end-time kingdom. Is it complete yet? No, but it's underway. So, what is Revelation about? Going back to Revelation 1, it's about this kingdom that has already begun, though not yet completed. This last phase of the end times, the final act in the human drama, and it's going on now. So, Revelation is for us now as well as for the past and the future. Or to put it one more way, at the risk of uh, beating the... Uh, apocalyptic horse here. Um, 
Another way to look at it is this. If you look on the back of your handout, there are three general approaches to Revelation today. Three kind of ways people approach the book. There's actually four, but one of them really no one follows, so I'll just say three. Uh, one of them is called preterism. Preterism is the view that Revelation primarily has to do with past events, that it describes... Uh, preterists will typically say Revelation describes the fall of Rome or maybe the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., but it's about something that happened in the past. And so it is describing something that's already taken place. On the other hand, at the other extreme, there's futurism. Futurism says, no, Revelation is primarily about stuff that has not happened yet and we're still waiting for it to happen. Has anyone here read the Left Behind series? Uh-huh. That's futurism. If you read Left Behind, you read a futurist take on Revelation. It's, the idea is everyone gets sucked out of the world through, apparent, through what I guess is called the secret rapture. And then what's in Revelation starts, but it's still all in the future. And then there's a third approach, which is called idealism, which says that it's not really about the past or the future. It's more about the, the continual battle between the kingdom of God and Satan that's going on all the time throughout the world. And, and I guess what I'm arguing this morning is that I think all three of them have some truth to them. And all three of them have a perspective that's accurate. Uh, because the end times is this entire period. And so I'm not surprised that it relates to the past. I'm not surprised that Revelation speaks to the first century. When we read the visions in Revelation, our first step should not be to open up our newspapers and say, what's going on today? The first thing we should ask is, what did it mean to those people? Because it was written to them back then. So it should have past fulfillments. But it should also have future fulfillments. I think there's things in Revelation we haven't seen yet. And and we shouldn't be surprised by that. There's a future aspect to it. But there's also a recurring pattern so that the things we see in Revelation are also happening today because we continue to exist in this end time phase. So it has a past, a present, and a future application in, in attempts to make it very chronological and linear. I just think get blown apart by the book itself. It's a living, moving book. We're going to find sometimes in Revelation we're in the past. Sometimes we're whiplashed into the future. Sometimes we're back here again in in the present. And and that's the nature of visionary literature. It's moving. It's alive and active. So what does that mean for us? I think it means that Revelation is telling us we've got to wake up and pay attention because this is the end times. This is is it. There is not another act after this one. This is the time to choose where we stand with Christ. Because these are the end times. This is it. We have got to deal with Christ now. He is the King. His kingdom is here. Jesus wins. I better figure out where I stand with this. And what makes it tricky is that right now His kingdom is in some ways invisible And so we might be able to say, oh, you know, where is his kingdom? The world's going on just as it always has. No, no, no. We need to make a choice. And Revelation reveals that choice to us. Um, If you've never repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, Revelation is a great challenge to you because the King is going to stand before you and Jesus is going to offer you both a challenge and an opportunity to come to him. And, And you're going to look at yourself and realize through Revelation that our morality, our religiosity, our spirituality. I mean, everyone today is spiritual, right? But man, that does not cut it. As we are sinners before God, and only the blood of Jesus shed on the cross can save us from our sins. Our, our attempts at being decent people is not enough. The King has come, and the King has died for the rebels to save them. And so it's a call to put our faith in Christ. 
I think it's a call for those of us who call ourselves Christians to really look at our lives and say, where do I stand with Christ? Am I following Him? Am, am I willing to stand up like Daniel? Who, who was, he wasn't a chameleon. You know, I, we tend to be chameleons. You know, we're on the lacrosse team. We blend in there like a chameleon. And then, you know, we go to the office and we blend in. So we look like people at the office. And then we're in the neighborhood and we blend in. And, and we're so afraid of standing out. We're so afraid of mentioning the word God, let alone the word Jesus. We're so afraid that people are going to, you know, reject us or, or ostracize us. This is the time to take a stand. We can't hide anymore. We've got to be like Daniel who took a stand. As a result, he took a trip to the zoo on the wrong side of the fence, you know. Would I be willing to be thrown to the lions for Christ? I mean, Revelation is going to ask us those kinds of really in-our-face questions. And, and if I say, oh, yeah, I'd do that. Well, really? Why am I afraid to even pray for people? Why, why am I afraid to tell people the name of Christ? Revelation is a call for the church to shine in the darkness, to not be afraid and to be faithful to Christ, whatever the cost. And so it's a really challenging book because the time is now. The end is upon us. The guy with the sandwich board walking around that says the end is near, the dude is right. (laughs) The end is near. So what are we going to do? How will we live? This is revelation. This is what it's going to call us to do. So what is revelation? It's a prophecy. What is revelation about? It's about the end times kingdom of Jesus that has already begun, is currently moving forward, and will reach its climax when Christ comes again. It'll have past, present, and future applications. But this book is for now, not just for the future. It's for now. And the third question I want to ask is, why then should we read this book? I suppose we've given some answers already, but I want to just pull an answer right out of the text. It's in verse 3. Why should we read this book? Because, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. There's a blessing by reading this book. There's a blessing that comes when we have our, our idolatry challenged. And, you know, our, the death grip that I have on my life of being comfortable, of being happy, of being well-fed, of being entertained, this kind of death grip I have of defining my life that way is broken with revelation. And I'm called to look toward the coming of Christ. So there's a blessing that comes to reading this book. It's a blessing that we want to have. Notice that it says, Blessed is the one who reads, and blessed are those who hear. Now, in the first century, when this was originally copied, how would it be transmitted around? Well, you know, they would take the copy of the letter, they'd go to the church uh, copy machine and make 20 copies, and. Yeah. You know? Well, they put it on email and send it. No, no, what did they do? Uh, literally, a guy would stand up in front of the church and read the letter. <laughs> and literally, everyone else would sit there and listen. So, blessed is the one who, the one who reads. And blessed are those who listen. But not just hear it. What else do we have to do to receive the blessing? Take to heart what's written in it. Or in Greek, it's just keep it. We have to obey it. And so this is not just a book to kind of fascinate our curiosity. This is not a puzzle book. This is a prophetic call upon the church, upon me and you, to be faithful to Christ in an ungodly world. Tell me that isn't present and modern and pressing to our situation today in the 21st century. This is a book for today. 
So I have a homework assignment for you for next week. You have to do your homework or we won't let you in. Um, just kidding. We will. Here's the homework assignment. Read the book of Revelation this week. Blessed is the one who reads it. I just want you to read it. It's 15 pages long in my Bible. Uh, if you're a slow re- I'm a slow reader. I don't know if anyone else. I've always been a slow reader. If you're a slow reader, even you can read 15 pages in seven days. I think you can do it. And I just want you to read the book. That's your homework. Just read it cover to cover. Okay? And what I want you to do as you read it is I want you to, to approach it like that 12-year-old who's just reading it with the eyes of faith and excitement. I want you to take whatever you think you know about Revelation, not get rid of it. I just want you to put it on a shelf for a week. So if you read Left Behind, just take it out of your brain and put it on a shelf. <laughs> well, you can go back to it later. But just this week, read it like you've never read Left Behind. I, I want you to take, if you've been to a prophecy conference, take that out of your head, put it on a shelf whatever it is. Uh, If you were in my Sunday school class when I talked on Revelation for three weeks, take whatever I said out, put on a shelf, and just let the book speak to you. This is a prophecy. Jesus is alive. He is the risen Lord. This is still His prophetic word. It will speak to us if we come to Him and say, Lord, Jesus, I want to hear from You. Just approach this book afresh. Read through it this week. And don't be surprised if you receive a blessing in the process. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, King Jesus, speak to your subjects. Speak to your beloved family that you bought with your own blood. Lord, I thank you for the blood-bought Church of Christ that sits before us today, sits before me today. And I pray, Jesus, that as they read your prophecy, that, Lord, you would give the blessing you promised to them. And that, God, I pray you'd begin to speak to our congregation. Lord, you wrote seven letters to seven churches. I wonder what you'd say to our church. God, I pray that we would be open to hearing what the Spirit has to say to this church. God, we, we don't want to just approach Revelation with a sort of detached intellectual curiosity. God, open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us. Help us to absorb the words of this prophecy. Lord Jesus, rule and reign over South Shore Baptist Church. We lay ourselves before you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please find the red celebration hymnal and turn to number 370. Number 370, rejoice, the Lord is King. Would you please stand?